0: Welcome to The Twelfth Story, a podcast from the Mercantile Library where readers gather to connect, debate, and discuss. The Literary Center of Cincinnati, the Mercantile, is a 183-year-old working library with more than 80,000 books available to members. The library organizes book discussion groups and writing workshops and welcomes thousands every year to its author talks, lectures, and other civic events. Harriet Beecher Stowe and Herman Melville, Colson Whitehead, and Zadie Smith all have spoken at Mercantile events. Located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati, we always welcome new members and guests. You belong here. I'm Hillary Copsey, book advisor at The Mercantile. We're talking today about The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay, NPR named this novel one of the best books of 2018, and it was recently optioned as a TV series by Amy Poehler's production company. Set in 1980 Chicago and modern-day Paris, the book chronicles the incredible devastation of the AIDS epidemic and its effect on those who survived. With us today to talk about this incredible book is Linda Cider, Executive Director of Caracol, a nonprofit organization that positively changes lives in the fight against HIV and AIDS through prevention, housing, and care. Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having today. me. Um, I, before we get into the book, I wanted to talk a little bit about Caracol, in case people aren't familiar with the organization. Sure. Um, can you tell us what it does and you know how it began? Okay. Well, um, much like this book, we began in the 80s as
1: well, in response to the AIDS epidemic. We started out as a small housing agency, um, basically taking care of people as they died, um, like some of the characters in this book. Um, Right here in Cincinnati? Yes, absolutely. Um, because at the time in 1987 when we were incorporated, it was about two years to diagnosis to death for many people. And Cincinnati became kind of a hub because we had great medical care here and clinical trials that other cities didn't have access to. Oh,
0: that's interesting.
1: Yeah, we were one of the first clinical trials units in the country, which drew people to our city. And also there were there were young men whose families would not or could not take care of them, so we did. And then fast forward through the years, we added more housing programs, served more people. We started um, offering permanent supportive housing, particularly around the time that the antiretrovirals, the medications in the, about 1995, became available, which changed everything. People, for people began living, living. with yes, this. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of became more of a chronic disease than a, than a death sentence. Um, but people still needed housing and support. Um, added to that, over the next few years, we st- began case management services. We now case manage 1,500 people living in the eight county region in Southwest Ohio. We also um, have pharmacy services, Mm -hmm. which um, provides low cost drugs for people. Um, We also still have our housing programs and we also now um, are very engaged in the prevention realm. We have an entire department devoted to prevention efforts, including HIV testing.
0: Oh, well, that's wonderful. I had no idea that history of Cincinnati and the and the HIV and AIDS epidemic, the testing and everything. That's really fascinating.
1: And our history here really parallels the history in Chicago on a little smaller scale, but very similar dynamic.
0: Right. So th- that's actually what I wanted to talk about. The Great Believers, this book by Rebecca Mackay, it tackles the AIDS epidemic. And this, you know, I've read lots of books about about that era or that touch on that, but they're almost always set on the coast. They're in New York City or they're in San Francisco, almost always. Um, This felt like a new story, um, but perhaps it's not so new to you. Um, Right. Yeah. And like I said, the
1: experience in Chicago parallels Cincinnati on a smaller scale. It happened a little later here. Um, I just remember in the 80s seeing tabloid headlines, gay cancer. Right. Um, And then about, well, as the book describes, about 1985, the test came out. And we had a little clearer idea in terms of what we were dealing with. Um, And people knew if they were positive or not. And, you know, there began to be, you know, people information and prevention efforts to help people can take care of themselves and avoid infection. Um, but it's interesting in the book, there was so much suspicion so at that time about the test, and I'd forgotten about that.
0: Yeah, that was something that I was struck by was, you know, it seems like I know I was telling you before we started recording. I... I as a journalist, I have written about HIV and AIDS, and I know that is more of a chronic disease at this point. And so I was struck when I was reading this book about the suspicion around the test, that the government would somehow be watching them, right. and that if they were to be tested, then you know something bad might happen to them, or there's this sort of fatalistic view of right. why should I even know, right. it doesn't why matter, why bother? Because if I've got it, I'm dead, and we're probably all going to die anyway, right? right? So was that... that that rings true to you. Oh, absolutely.
1: Well, one thing, the government was silent at the time. You know, we were in the middle of this epidemic, particularly on the coasts of New York and San Francisco. And I remember reading, I don't know what year it was, but it was the early 80s, that it was some huge percentage of people with the Metropolitan Opera in New York died. And it was directly attributed to HIV. So there was this sort of fatalistic, like, well, we're, you know, I'm a gay man. Um, I've come to the cities, I've come to embrace who I am, and this is inevitable. And the government was silent. I mean, there was no mention of HIV. Right, famously,
0: I'd, Reagan didn't use the Absolutely. For years.
1: For years. So, um, people became suspicious of the government and felt like, well, they're just letting this happen to us. There's no intervention. No one cares. No one even is speaking about this. And but particularly that fatalistic like what's the point? Mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm positive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the book makes that point so with the parallel
0: between that and World War 1. So that was one of the, I love that. Yeah, you know, we're talking a lot about the book. The book and and how it tackles the AIDS epidemic. But the book is actually very interestingly structured in that it has like three different timelines really going Mm -hmm. on, right? There's the 1980s Chicago where we have um, Yale, the main character who's building, he's a gay man um, in this community that's being ravaged by a disease, trying to build this art collection. Um, And then there's Fiona, one of the sisters of one of Yale's friends who has died of, of the virus. Um, in modern-day Paris, right. so there's that happening mm-hmm. now. So here she is in, you know, the 21st century, having survived and seen not only her brother but many of his friends, these people that were family to her that mm-hmm. she took care of, um, die of this virus, uh, and, and the disease. And then there's also this 1920s, you know, post World War One um, timeline where this woman who survived the war and, and lost but, her great but, love. Exactly, lost her great love in it, saw all these other friends of hers die. That parallel struck me, the AIDS epidemic versus the epidemic of war, this idea of a whole generation lost. Absolutely,
1: and the grief and loss that <clears> resulted <throat> from what they thought was freedom flocking to cities. You know, in the case of pre-World War I Paris, it was Bohemian, writers, um, great intellectuals were drawn to Paris for kind of a free lifestyle, mm-hmm. and betrayed by that free lifestyle, in a sense, because of World War One. and the same with HIV. Um, it was a time when, you know, gay men were clearly closeted, um, came to the cities to be free, um, to reinvent who they are, to be who they are, and then this epidemic strikes. And so that parallel, I thought, was so powerful and so interesting.
0: Yeah, the question of, like, what happens to those who survive when so many people have not struck me as an as an interesting question and a really powerful one. What, you know, as someone who's still working in, a, in these communities that have potentially been ravaged by it. What do you see from those who have survived at this point when it's a chronic disease or how does that affect them? Well, it it
1: definitely takes its toll. I mean, the older people that we serve who are survivors, Mm -hmm. there's a sense sometimes of survivor guilt. Like I've lost my whole peer group in my 20s. How do I go on? Why me? Why have I survived this? And then the other thing we hear from people is just fatigue from working so hard to stay alive. Oh, yeah. Of taking medicines that may have side effects, um, you know, just general aging. And then the issues with HIV on top of that, people are tired. Mm -hmm. They get tired. I mean, I think sometimes we expect people who have survived, you know, catastrophic kinds of illness or epidemics to be thrilled about it like, you know, really- a, Lucky
0: me, yes. I did this, right? And
1: to celebrate mm-hmm. their survival. And that's not necessarily the case. With that becomes there's quite a price, just as there was for Fiona in the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was 19. She, even though she was a straight woman, she lost her entire peer group too. She took care of those men as they died. How do you move on after that?
0: Yeah, that caretaker role was one that I was struck by too. You know, she, she had devoted so much of her life To taking care of these men as they got sick, and then either they, the ones that were left, were well, or the rest of them had were gone. Right.
1: So then, what? Right. It was almost as if, sort of, her ability to love and energy and connect with other people was just used up Mm -hmm. in her early twenties.
0: Yeah. You mentioned that the drugs, the drug development kind of changed everything. Um, can you talk a little bit about that kind of how you know, we see in the book that there's a testing and there's a doctor that's telling them, just hold on. Yeah. If you can just hold on, there
1: will be there survivors. There will be
0: survivors. Well, we're to the point now where there are survivors. Right. And then, as you mentioned, it's a chronic disease. Can you talk a little bit about HIV and AIDS care now? Sure. Um,
1: <clears throat> yeah, it's the medications are wonderful. They don't work for everyone. They work for most. Um, and if you're compliant, you can live a reasonably long life. Some of the barriers though that people face, particularly low income people or people with other coexisting conditions, I mean it's one thing if you're a middle class person, you have good insurance, your family is supportive, you have friends who are supportive, your situation is so different from someone who's homeless or an IV drug user or um, basically ashamed that you have HIV and your family doesn't even know. Or you you have a job but Minimal insurance, and your copay is $2,000 a month just for medication so to stay to alive. Mortgage, yeah. That's where we come in, gotcha. in terms of helping people, one, connect to medical care, stay connected, but also get the medication they need.
0: Mm-hmm. The, you mentioned that being ashamed of HIV and AIDS, is certainly something that's happening in the book. Um, yes. The, there are people who, characters in the book, who don't want to admit that they're gay, right. even... Um, and, and at risk for this, um, there are characters, you, we've mentioned the suspicion of the test, I don't wanna know, um, maybe not wanting to admit that they probably have it and, and th- they're not changing their behaviors. It, are those things that still happen today?
1: Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah, we see every once in a while, not every once in a while, commonly, young men who come in who maybe were tested years ago and just ignored the fact that they were positive, Mm -hmm. whether it's out of just fear or shame, um, denial, and then come back to us when they're sick, needlessly sick, because they've ignored their positive test. Um, Now the protocol is people should start on HIV drugs as soon as they know they're positive that didn't used to be the case. So time is really important with this this illness. So um, we get people on medication as soon as we possibly can Mm -hmm. versus wasting time and having them get sick in between. But yeah, we see that a lot. It's so unfortunate. And it's so unnecessary. And I I worked in this field in the late 80s with another organization, and I've been at CARACOL for 15 years. And I I still tend to underestimate the amount of stigma and shame that goes with HIV. Um, Certainly we saw that 30 plus years ago, and I tend in my own mind to think it's better. But when I talk to the people we serve, it's not. Um, For many of them, they still live with so much fear that even their own family's going to find out that they're HIV positive. I might
0: not want to be around them. I remember when when this when the book was taking place. I was a, a, a kid and a teenager, and I remember there was just a lot of fear
1: mm-hmm.
0: that just being in the same room in right. some cases. It was ignorance, I oh, think, for the most absolutely. part. We just didn't understand what was happening. Right. Um, and so the response to that was fear. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still have people ask
1: those same questions. Which is, is it safe to eat off a fork with someone with HIV? Is it safe to kiss them? I mean, just those same basic questions that we got 30 something years ago are still being asked. And to be clear, it is safe, right? Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely.
0: Right, so I I see you've got your book here and it's really (laughs) dog-eared and you clearly, like things spoke to you. I I would like to hear kind of the, the, maybe your favorite part of the book or the thing that you read and thought, yes, people need to know this, or that is exactly the way it was.
1: Well, I, again, just the fear and uncertainty for young men, young gay men in the 80s. Um, one of the, the passages that really stuck out to me was, um, Nora, who quoted, I believe it was Hemingway, saying that um, about her time in Paris before World War I, I was walking in the golden age and didn't know it. And that really stood out to me, because I think that's how it was for many men who had, you know, left their families, the Midwest, the South, whatever, went to the cities and thought, now I can live. Now I can live openly. Now I can live a uh, love other men in the way that I want to. And for them, it was the golden age. And then this disease hit.
0: Yeah. Um, It really struck me uh, in all of the various timelines in this book, the way she's, uh, Rebecca McKay is dealing with family, the family that you create and the family you choose. Yes. and sometimes that's the same as the family you're born with, and sometimes, sometimes it is not. not. And and but that it matters regardless. This is certainly a book that's exploring those ideas too. Oh, I, I love that. Yeah, and the necessity of it. Right. You know, part of the reason it is a golden age to your to your quote is that they had this community. Right. Um, and one of the really devastating things is this disease is taking their community away. Absolutely. Um, just in the same way that World War One took away an entire generation generation of of men. Yes, This disease did the exact same thing. I had never thought about this disease in that way, but it certainly, it seems to have had that effect for for large communities.
1: Yeah, I think it's a beautiful parallel, beautiful. And I just remember (laughs) in in the 80s in particular, so many of the young men that I knew um, were taking care of their dying lovers. They would go to work all day, at whatever job they had, uh, pretend that they were either married to women or, you know, were bachelors, yes. and um, come home taking care of their partners who were dying, um, helping them bathe, get to bed, get their medication, feed them. So sad, and. That really took me back to, to remembering some of those men and thinking about, yeah, how do you, if you're the survivor, how do you move on from that?
0: Yeah, what happens right. then? Yeah. Right.
1: I mean, there, there's a passage in here as well that said something about, you know, we've seen things that our parents hadn't lived through. And so then there's no one to guide us from exactly. here. Exactly,
0: there's no guidebook. There's nothing, right. to, nothing to tell us how to behave. Yes, or what who's going to gonna teach next. us to
1: live? Mm-hmm.
0: The other, you know, along the lines so Nora is a really great character. This—that's the 1920s Bohemian lifestyle, mm-hmm. and we see her mostly as an older lady, kind yes. of remembering these things. But she is a great character in that she she has that perspective of she she has figured out how to move on. Right. Maybe not perfectly, but mm-hmm. she's done it. Um, she says something in the book about the the shadow art, the all all the art that no one else but yes. her can see because it's not there because those artists who had created it
1: are gone they're gone whether it's because of the war like her lover Branko Novak <laughs> and his suicide his mm-hmm. death and suicide or yeah related to HIV
0: yeah and that really struck me the 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 things that we personally the losses that we go through our life with that no one else can see and how do how do we address those you, you know it i think Nora and other characters, they need help dealing with those losses, but it's hard for them to even verbalize, to articulate mm-hmm. yeah. what, what it is that they lost and the help that they, they need. Uh, and that
1: loss is like you, you mentioned is so nuanced and so layered. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also liked when she would talk about, I love Nora as well. And when she talked about um, Ranko, the artist who died, who was her lover. Um, and she, she even said, you know, we might not have made it long-term, but it doesn't matter. His loss overshadowed her entire life. And again, that was so similar to the young men who died of HIV. Um, those relationships were so profound. It didn't matter what form they took. They lingered throughout their lives. Whether they
0: were friends, right. lovers, yes. and whatever it was, the fact that they were a loss to that person yeah. is going to stick with you. Yeah. Um, I thought about it from your perspective. I mean, one of the things you, you're helping with is care, right? The, the the care, the care it takes to to survive um, uh, and to live, even outside of the disease. You know, to get housing, to do all those things, mm-hmm. right? How do you address those sorts of emotional needs um, in this sort of a situation where you have this chronic disease or massive loss or
1: That's a great question, and that's why each person who comes to us is assigned a staff person, a case manager, to kind of be their guide to help them connect to care and to be their support person. I mean, we have some clients um, who call their case manager every week, and we have a couple of clients who live in the rural county who call just to connect. That connection, that touch point, is so important to them, because um, the needs of rural people are pretty great, especially in terms of stigma and access to care and that right. kind of thing. So just having that listening ear, someone who's on your side, um, someone that you know will be there for you to answer your questions, be there for hard times. That's so important. And then we also have um, agencies we work with that you know have have therapists that we can refer people to, that we know, understand the issues and Mm -hmm. can help people through that.
0: It's good that you have that kind of a network.
1: We do. We do.
0: Were there other parts of the book that rung particularly true for you?
1: Oh, there was so much. Um, Again, I just thought it was an absolutely beautiful book. And the other part that stood out to me, and I mentioned this before, is, you know, the Golden Age, flocking to the cities. Yeah. I always got the sense that, I almost got the sense that the characters thought cities would be safe for them. Yeah. You know, the bohemians in pre-World War I could be who they are. Gay men, again, could come out and, and own their sexuality. Um, and they, they almost felt betrayed by the cities that they flocked to. Oh, well, that's um, an interesting From what they thought would be safety. Yeah. Turned out to be the most dangerous place in the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they they had congregated in these places and yet then they essentially got targeted there. Absolutely.
1: Um, I mean, France, pre-World War I, incredibly dangerous place.
0: That's where a lot of the fighting was happening in that case. So there were a lot of, um, literally a lot of bombings and things like that that were happening. But then um, in Chicago and the cities in the epidemic, these um, communities where the gay people had this is my home. This is where we are. We're like-minded. This is our community. We're building a community. Right, We're building the community around Boys Town in Chicago. At The time is where the book is set. And now the virus is running rampant through it. That's must've been terrifying.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: One of the questions I had, you know, you open this conversation telling me about uh, Cincinnati and how it was an epicenter. That's why Caracol exists. I had no idea about that, and I had no idea about Chicago, and I was struck reading this book by the fact that it's been 30 years, and this is a story that I've not seen, that that, that we do only see it on the coasts, in San Francisco or in New York. The stories about the AIDS epidemic are almost always there. So why do you think it's taken so long to see these stories bubble up kind of in in the Midwest or uh, outside of the coasts?
1: Well, I think things take longer here, (laughs) that's the short answer, but also I think those of us that work in the field need to do a better job telling the story because it is part of our history. After I read the book, I watched a um, YouTube interview with Mm. Rebecca Mackay and she made an interesting point. She said, you know, I have yet to see uh, an American history textbook that even mentions the HIV AIDS epidemic. I thought that's such an interesting point. Such an interesting point.
0: You know, and I read an interview with her and I felt silly for not thinking about it, but she said she did much of her research by going through back issues of the alt-weeklies yes. from Chicago. Yeah. And I thought, that is so smart because those are right. the, that's the media outlet that would have been covering this issue then. Right. And it wouldn't have been the Tribune? No. And it occurred to me, like, I bet you if somebody went back through like City Beat articles, for instance, right. w- would yeah. there be information there? Yeah.
1: I know that, you know, the gay publications at the time certainly carried information about HIV. Yeah,
0: that was a a really interesting part of the book to me, that Mm -hmm. the ways that they were communicating within their own community, Mm -hmm. you know, the editorials and the fights in the community. Yes. You know, should you get tested? Should you not Not get get tested? tested? And that there were media outlets aimed at that audience that were hashing out those issues, even when the national media wasn't even talking about it. I thought that
1: was really interesting. And I thought that Charlie,
0: who was the editor in one of
1: the gay publications, Mm -hmm. ended up um, absolutely not practicing what he preached in terms of safer sex in the community and all of that. Um, Yeah, I thought that was interesting. The other part that I liked was the portrayal of the doctor. I think his name was Dr. Chang, Yes, I believe so. Oh, that took me back. I mean, the doctors, um, particularly at UC Health at the time, it was really the only place that would treat people with HIV. And so we had these infectious disease doctors that went to school to treat infectious diseases that had no idea HIV would basically become their career. Wow. And so these doctors were so amazing. When I I love the story about uh, Yale coming back from the art opening and his oxygen was running out, and there was Dr. Chang in the front of the hospital with a fresh tank of oxygen waiting for him. And someone might read that and think, oh, that wouldn't happen. It did happen. That's the kind of care people got here in this city. Right in the nineteen eighties. Yes, with the doctors. Um, with the Infectious Disease Center at UC. Um, they made house calls um, because no one else would take care of their patients. They became their, you know, infectious disease specialist, primary care specialist, their priest, their confidant, their main cheerleader and supporter. The relationships that people had with their healthcare professionals was absolutely profound.
0: And see, what's interesting about that is because then that's a whole nother community that is affected by this disease. Absolutely. And those doctors who had to watch their patients and some, if the patient didn't hang on until the drugs were better, right? They had to watch these patients pass away. Absolutely.
1: These young men that just, that was not what they signed up for. Right. Um, Uh, One doctor I know, she practiced in Baltimore in the 80s, and she had a fairly long commute home every day, and she said she would get in her car and sob all the way home every day. I
0: can't imagine having to deal with that. It must have been really devastating. Um, I wanted to talk, I was hoping that, you know, one of the things I walked away from, and this is one of the reasons I love this book so much, a book that can teach me something or make me interested enough in it that I end it and think, I need to know more about that. Um, so I was hoping that you might be able to point us if, if other people read this book and they have that same feeling of, oh, I need to know more about this. Um, are there places that they can go to, to learn more about the HIV AIDS epidemic, um, or the way it's being treated now or the Cincinnati history? I mean, honestly, I'm walking away from this conversation (laughs) wanting to know about that. So where, where can people go to learn more?
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, One of the things that we've added to our office space is a timeline of HIV in Cincinnati. Um, So we do have some archival material that we're happy to share and to talk about our experience Mm -hmm. with HIV.
0: Are there other books that that you've read that that do a particularly good job of telling this story?
1: I can't think of any, actually. And that's part of why I think this was so remarkable. I'm sure, that, I mean, there's the band played on. Right. There, are some, there are some good books out there. Right. Um, also, some of Tony Kushner's work, the right. playwright. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly Angels, Angels in, America in America is a right? beautiful, beautiful piece. And other pieces of his work touch on the epidemic in different ways, but that's not Cincinnati. But it's beautiful nonetheless.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so yeah, there there really isn't anything. Well, maybe I should do that when I retire.
0: Right? <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> I do too, actually. You can have an author event here. You'll be all set. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, it's it honestly it's good to know that this is kind of a unique book because that was the impression that I got reading it that this was a special story that that was Absolutely. worth closer attention.
1: Yeah, and really well researched. Um, yeah, I mean she obviously put a lot of time and work into understanding the issue before she wrote about it. And one criticism I had heard was that she was sort of, it was sort of cultural appropriation. Yes. Um, which I, I think is interesting. I'm not sure what I think about that.
0: Yeah. She's actually dealt with that in some of her, um, interviews about the book that I think she's self-aware about it. And she did try very hard to reach out to, um, gay men about their experiences and try to reach primary sources, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a hard question.
1: It is, and yeah, one that, yeah, it's good to think about it. But on the other hand, all writers in some ways, if you're portraying a character unlike yourself...
0: You're imagining and researching and doing the best you can to right, tell the story. Right, to
1: be in their shoes. Yeah,
0: So, but at least from your perspective as someone who's been working with this community for a long time. It seems like it, it felt true to me. Oh, you. it
1: absolutely did. I thought it was a beautiful representation of that time and place in the
0: 80s. Yeah, and would you recommend this book to
1: people? Oh, absolutely, I already have. Yeah. And it's funny, when, when um, I was asked to do this, I had gotten the book for the holiday and I hid it in my stack and I was anxious to read it, so this was perfect timing. Yeah, I would highly recommend this book. I can certainly see it why it was shortlisted for the National Book Award.
0: Yeah. All that attention. Do you feel like that's a good thing for the, the community of folks dealing with HIV and AIDS today that there's so much attention on this book? It's you know been optioned for a TV show. Um, do you feel like that's a good thing or that it will matter at all?
1: I hope it matters. Yeah. I mean, I think anything we can do to tell the story, which is important and profound, but to also normalize the fact that HIV is a disease like any other So I think it's a good thing.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the 12th Story. It was a great conversation. To make sure you catch every episode, subscribe through iTunes or SoundCloud. And your good words are better than any advertisement. If you like what you heard, tell your friends or tweet to us at MercantileLIB. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks today to our guest, Linda Sider. You can get more information about her organization, Caracol, at caracol.org. You can also sign up for their 5K, 10K walk, run, March 31st at Spring Grove Cemetery. The Twelfth Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at MercantileLibrary.com where you can learn about and register for all of our upcoming events. You belong here.